Yes, we're back. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to another episode of the Small Chops Podcast. We are here to discuss as much as we can about love, relationships, and guess how to do it all better. Um, not coming from a place of ignorance or lack, but coming from a place of effort, uh, concise effort, into trying to figure out how to do this thing called love a little better. Um, I was suggested a book that has been a real joy to discuss um, in this episode, I'm going to talk about the book called Intimate Communion by David Data. I'm pretty sure it's. Oof, wouldn't that be crazy if I didn't get that right? <laughs> Luckily, it was. Uh, David Data. I think I'm going to cover the first three chapters because there's just so much that this book introduces me to that I want to um, be of service and provide for you. I was thinking about what song I wanted to start this episode with because I wanted the song to go along with the theme of the episode. But not today. Today, I am presenting you a song that has been in heavy rotation. In my gym workouts at home, I've listened to chopped and screwed versions. I've listened to slow and reverbed versions. I've looked for covers of the song. The song is just a, it's just an incredible song. It's a, it's a song about a story. Those of you that are old enough to remember King of the Hill, it, King of the Hill is a cartoon in America that was based somewhere in the South. I want to say Texas, but maybe not. And one of the characters in the show King of the Hill is named John Redcorn. And throughout the show, John Redcorn is having an affair with the wife of a character named Dale Gribble. His wife is Nancy. And Nancy and John Redcorn um, have had a pretty, it was almost laughable to at, at a certain point in the, in, the, in the show. There's just so many reasons for her husband to find out. They got so sloppy. They end up having a child together. The child looks exactly like John Redcorn, who is um, an indigenous person in the area. And the husband still is none the wiser. The wife complains that she's had migraines for years and John Redcorn is her alternate healer. Is there like new age medicinal healer? And that's just a cover for their affair. They've had this affair going on for years throughout the show. Um, at, to a certain point where he comments, he's like, Dale is so oblivious that he's take, kind of taking the fun out of this. So I give you that introduction to John Redcorn to talk about a song by an artist named her, Sir, almost said her, <laughs> uh, by an artist named Sir. Um, Sir's music video, Sir's song. Such a beautiful song because... It talks about John Redcorn's story, but maybe later on in life. John Redcorn and Nancy have this affair for upwards of 12 years or even more, or even longer. And the song takes place when John Redcorn is much older. Um, I would presume maybe sometime, sometime in his 50s or even older, where he's no longer having fun being the third wheel, I guess, in this relationship pyramid um he doesn't want to disturb what's going on between nancy and her husband 
They have a relationship that both Nancy and Dale, her husband, want. And so uh, John Redcorn is in love with a woman that refuses to leave her husband for him for whatever reason. And Sir so beautifully encapsulates the feelings, maybe not of a younger, more um, adventurous or brash John Redcorn, but John Redcorn kind of in his, uh, what would you call it? Sunsetting days, kind of in his dusk, um, reflecting on the time that he and Nancy had and how much he feels for her and enjoys her. And this is the interpretation of those feelings of that attitude much later on in life by Sir. I want to play more than the first verse. Maybe I'll play it up to the hook, but it's just such a good song. And here it is. Alone, every night alone Why am I alone? I know that you want me to Am I wrong? Tell me that I'm wrong Tell me I deserve all the pain that you put me through Oh song is just oh, what what a what an insightful song um we never got this point of view from the show uh the music video is fantastic and he just does a great great job of showing a man that's a a little bit more reflective i guess a man that's actually thinking about what he is doing in his life in his day-to-day in his week-to-week with somebody who he can't have he only has limited access to. Um, it's it's such a just a great song. I highly suggest it. And this song has for no honestly for no particular reason this song has been on my mind and heavy rotation. It's not even a new song. I think this song might be two years old or even longer than that. Three years old. The song, the music video came out, so the song is probably you know approximately that as well. And it's just it's just a great song. Great great song. I highly suggest listening to it and the rest of Sir's music as well. Sir is an R&B artist who very underrated. I really enjoy his music and what he brought to this story has been one of my favorite um, interpretations, I guess, of popular culture. This guy really knocked this song out of the park, yo. And the sentiment of that guy, John Redcorn. So I highly suggest listening to it. 
But don't let me get too off topic. Um, the song really does warm my heart. It's a great song. I, I highly suggest it. But as we get into this um, part one of Intimate Communion, let me pull up my notes because I've taken a lot of notes on this, on this, uh, on this book. I guess I want to start with David Data explaining the differences between three levels of relationship and how we are moving from one level to another, albeit subconsciously, but we could be moving there faster with intention. For a lot of human history, there has been this push for, or I guess just normalized gender roles. There was an interdependence between the man and the woman, historically speaking, uh, where the woman may not have had access to food or money and needed to rely on a man to, to provide those things. Um, one of the biggest achievements in a man's life was family, and that man was incapable of having family without a woman. There are very many um, beautifully depicted um, inter, inter, interplay, interchanges between the man and the woman. Um, but there was a lot of abuse as well. There was a lot of withholding. There was a lot of, a lot of families, you know, all around the world, across, the, across town and things like that. So there was a lot of trouble that came with these defined gender roles. And we've moved from those gender roles to a more 50-50 based relationship. Whereas the man might not be in um, full control of finances anymore. Uh, women have been making a lot of strides when it comes to um, economic independence. And uh, women have had the ability to create families on their own. Uh, without necessarily needing a man uh, there for the for the maintenance of that family, and in many cases, men have um, championed women in this regard. Uh, there's been a real big push for helping out and supporting single motherhood. There's been the opposite as well. There's been a lot of vilifying of that, and I don't know where I sit on that because. There are many great examples and there are many just really, really bad examples of single parent households or the, the, pro, the progeny of those single parent households and how they turn out and how they enter relationships and things like that. David Data gives us a third option from the 50-50 relationship, and that is to move into intimate communion, where we are no longer keeping tally, keeping score. We're no longer trying to make sure that everything is as quote unquote fair and balanced as possible. But we surrender to the relationship. We surrender to the love that we want to give our partners. And we let that guide our um, intentions, our motives, and the direction of our relationship. He does a really good job of explaining what the two, I guess, two of the bigger pieces of um, his desire for intimate communion would be. Um. So this is going to be quite the treat. There's a lot to unpack. And so wherever you are, have a seat, settle down, take a walk, put your headphones on, 
And um, yeah, let's go on this journey together. One of the thoughts that were really captivating when it came to the explanation of the 50-50 relationship is how business-like the 50-50 relationship can be. He says, and I quote, when we focus on dividing the pie equally, our intimate embrace often becomes more like a business handshake. Got me thinking, can we really quantify and divide emotions, desires, and needs equally in a relationship? Can we say, oh, well, because I took you out to eat um, one night this week, then you're cooking two nights this week, or if you want me to rub your feet, then you know that means that you're going to give me three of this or half an hour of that. It just becomes really tedious, and it isn't sustainable at the end of the day. I don't think um, that 50-50 balance in a relationship ever lasts very long, but it's very difficult to move beyond that if we are not equipped with the mentality or the desire to move beyond that. And on a cultural and societal level, I think there is not really much discussion about that in the West. Um, I don't know how things are supposed to go in marriages or how we're being encouraged in marriages to act, but in relationships and, you know, romantic relationships specifically, there is, um, there is a real push for that 50, 50 relationship. One captivating thought, um, that got me thinking besides the fact that um, this is a business handshake is there's so much uh, relation between a relation. There's so much uh, interplay or interchangeability when it comes to relationships and business relationships. So much of our culture, so much of our uh, modern romantic relationships are very much transactional. And it really emphasizes that 50, 50 desire that desire not to be taken advantage of, that desire to really um, put in as much as you're getting out, quote unquote, or you know, giving of yourself, sacrificing, putting effort, um, but not too much, not too little, just as much as the other person, and having those, I guess, battles, having those conversations about um, what it looks like and how you can compromise. I know compromise is a really big word when it comes to um, uh, modern relationships. So uh, that thought really. Uh, piqued my interest and uh, here in an internal tug of war many of us face here is an internal tug of war that many of us face um, that interdependence part of the 50-50 relationship is something that we don't want but we do sometimes right I know there are many people in relationships that want the, that desire to be needed you know um, you don't want to feel like your partner can walk out whenever they choose or you're expendable to them. There needs to be some kind of uh, value that you have in their life, right? Some kind of impact that will make it inconvenient and difficult for you to leave and for your partner to show that, for your partner to kind of demonstrate that on your behalf, I think is super important without the need for dependency sometimes, right? Um, I know very much in... Uh, the relationships that I've been in, I've really valued being needed, even if you could do the work by yourself, right? If your oil changes on or um, got a virus on your computer or any of those, any of those like 
technical things that need to be solved. It feels really good knowing that your person relies on you to do it, even though they could do it themselves. For me, that creates um, that leaning, which I think uh, strengthens a relationship. It's not an expectation. It is a service to the relationship saying, hey, you can lean on me in this aspect and I'm willing to do these things. And to be able to reciprocate that feels really good. So in one aspect, you have the interdependency of the uh, that first type of relationship, the, the dependence relationship, as well as the 50-50 where um, because I'm doing this, there are other things that I don't want to do or don't feel like I, you know, I want to do or maybe there's something that you want to do. Uh, or my partners, you know, who I'm talking about, uh, and being able to take the weight off of each other's shoulder, all right, acts of service is something that's super important to or it's 50-50 relationships, and I think that that works out really, really well. Uh, moving on from there, finding that equilibrium is definitely difficult. An observation of the book that really stood out was that women often comment about men becoming less committed in intimate in intimacy seemingly lost in their own worlds. This raises the essential question. Has our pursuit of equality perhaps missed the point of what it takes to make a romantic relationship truly vibrant? The book has a couple of quotes in regards to that. It says, and I quote, women are complaining that men are becoming weaker, less committed in intimacy, and seemingly lost in their lives. Men and women have discovered that equality by itself does not make for a passionate and growing relationship. And I wanted to emphasize that passion right there. Because in a 50-50 relationship, there really is a, a desire to be balanced, a desire to get back to zero. But at that zero point, there isn't much, um, I would almost call it competition, right? To I think there's a healthy competition in a relationship where you want to outdo your partner. Um, in an ideal relationship, I would imagine that, hey, you know what? I want to make sure that this next meal that I cook is going to blow her blow her mind. And I want her to know that I'm putting a lot of effort into this and blah, 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 whatever it is. And I want to kind of up the ante. You know what I mean? I want to change where the relationship is at this moment and kind of give it more uh, a loftier goal. And I think that's a beautiful thing. David Data makes it a point to not talk about historical traumas, past incidences, history with love and, you know, growing up and things like that. He doesn't find that much value in uh, explaining that or talking about that or having the desire for intimate communion hampered by those histories. It doesn't dwell on the history of love or past wounds. It talks about action, how to actively engage in intimate commuting. Diving deeper, I had an epiphany in this book. Of course, our adult relationships might often echo the dynamics from our childhood. There's no denying that um, connection, that, that relationship between how we have been loved, how we've learned to love, and how we love in our um, current romantic relationships. But the thought that I had is uh, whether or not we are subconsciously drawn to the partner that either mirrors the relationship, the mirrors the love that we had growing up, or do we try to substitute or supplement that love? So, for example, if, you know, 
I, as a young male, had a very masculine-leaning mother um, that didn't provide a lot of that maternal loving. Am I, am I subconsciously seeking other masculine women to date in hopes that somehow I will be able to um, encourage them or pull out of them that feminine love that I didn't get you know, growing up? It's just an example of uh, what I thought was um, a paradox almost, right? What I thought was really one of those human things that we don't quite think about or we don't put much uh, effort into discussing. The book goes on to talk about uh, nuances, love, romance, and polarity. It makes it very clear that love, romance, and polarity are not synonymous. When it talks about love, it says love. It says, and I quote, love is simply the opening of your heart. When your heart is open, you love whomever or whatever is in your heart. It goes on to say, yet even with an open heart, love is enough, is love enough for true intimate communion? And I thought that the book really shows how um, that I think that's kind of like the agape kind of love, right? You love all things. When you're open to love, there is no separation between you and whatever you're loving, whether it's a burger or a dog, a baby or, you know, a building or a location on this earth. These are all things that you can truly love, but it's because your heart is open more so than the um, connection you have with that person, place or, or even thing. I don't think love is enough. And I think the book will agree with me in saying that love is not enough to carry a meaningful and um, a meaningful relationship that you can both grow from. From love, we talk about sexual polarity. Now imagine sexual polarity being this magnetic dance between two energies, whether it's, um, the North Pole of a magnet being attracted to the South Pole of another magnet, um, the dance between two polarities, between the negative and the positive, the North and the South, the hot and the cold, the masculine and the feminine. Traditionally dubbed chemistry, it's this almost electric aura of energy that flows between two people. It's not love. It's not romance. It's just a, it's just a force. It can happen with a stranger. It can happen with somebody that you may not know, somebody that you do know, but you may not know them intimately. Um, that sexual polarity could happen in a moment, could happen with a glance, could happen with a dance, could happen in your pants, could happen in the stance. <laughs> uh, the point is, that is not something that's easily controllable. Um, I think that love is the same. Love is not easily controllable. Or maybe love is the most controllable out of the three, out of the love, romance, and polarity. But sexual polarity, for sure, is not um, controlled by either party. It's just noticed. It can be picked up on, and it can be acted upon or not. But um, that feeling, those, uh, those impulses, that raw primal force is very much apparent. The book defines it as the pull or repulsion between the masculine and feminine. The book says, and I quote, before we understood that sexual polarity can be turned on and off, we call it chemistry. It seems that either your intimate relationship has it or it doesn't. 
For me personally, I think I can love a person, place, or thing. That's easy. Uh, simply opening the heart and the dissolution of separateness. These are all governed by me and my choices. Romance, the book says, is an exclusive feeling. This is a feeling that you have with very few people in life. This is something that you do cultivate. This is something that you do decide on. But I think you have the feeling or you have the desire for romance, which you can act upon. So maybe romance is more controllable than love. Uh, but romance is cultivated by that comfortable, that at-home feeling with a person. But unfortunately, relationships that start with romance frequently lead to disappointment. I'm not sure why the book says the book the book says that these relationships frequently lead to disappointment. I'm not sure why, but I imagine it could be because of expectations, could be because of what you wish, um, what you imagined your um, romantic relationship going. Uh, how you want to deal with romance in your own life or how ignorant we could be when it comes to items like romance. Cause I know I haven't been taught that and I didn't really see many examples in my life. And then we go to sexual polarity is an R of energy between two people could happen with strangers. I already said that ultimately the goal of intimate communion is to surrender to love the book says, quote, to be freely open, even in the midst of fear, involves a moment-to-moment discipline of loving. As we're moving on to chapter 3, chapter 3 talks about creating sexual polarity. And sexual polarity is a big theme throughout the rest of this book. This builds on sexual polarity from here going forward. And they have a lot of beautiful examples of polarity. And I've taken a couple of trips recently. And I've spoken to people that were younger than me that were in committed relationships and not or have been. And for whatever reason, at this moment, they may not be. But one overarching theme is that there is a real, um, I I wouldn't call it a disdain, but I'll absolutely call it opposition towards this idea of polarity. And I think it gets vilified in our modern thinking because everything has a, degrees right um, polarity feels extreme whether it's the left or the right um, whether it's masculine or feminine it just feels like there's no space for the other and I think that's part of the paradox of life is that this book clearly states and I agree with it that um, each human being has a level of masculine and feminine energy within and more often than not you probably present one energy over the other but there is very much a mixture of the two. To what degree depends on the person, depends on the person's upbringing, depends on the person's conscious decisions. And I think that is being lost right now. I think if you're masculine, then there is no space for femininity in your life. If you're feminine, then masculine seems like uh, unattractive to the people that you may want to attract. And so I want to make the clear distinction that uh, while we can be feminine or masculine presenting, That doesn't mean that we are absolutely masculine and that doesn't mean that we should stay or aspire to be um, one or the other extreme. I think that um, 50-50 is really hard to come by and I don't think that may always work out for the best. It may for a select few, a more neutral um, sexual essence. Um, Some people 
or 65-35 or whatever blend of masculine and feminine. But I absolutely believe that there are two within us. And maybe, you know, a masculine presenting man showing femininity is attracting the feminine essence of a woman. And um, that creates the balance of a beautiful romantic relationship. And it doesn't even have to be a woman. I think that's another thing this book makes clear as well. We are talking more about the essences. So a feminine presenting man or a masculine presenting woman could also create a beautiful relationship. A feminine presenting man and a, feminine, and a masculine presenting man can create a beautiful relationship as well. We're talking more about the essences than we are about the gender or sexual assignment of the people um, engaging in, these, uh, in intimacy. So let's make sure we have that distinction set. Um, but the third chapter is, is, is beautiful, filled with gems. It juxtaposes mm, magnet, magnetic and electric poles with sexual energy. So like I was saying before, whether it's a north and south pole, positive or negative charge, um, these are the um, poles of sexual polarity, the masculine and the feminine essences. The book's alluded to something like the feminine exuding a water-like, um, the feminine being water-like, and the masculine being more, I, I would even call it sun, right? Like a sun ray. You don't think of it bending. You don't think of it moving you know, around. It just cuts right through, whether it's the clouds, whether it's the atmosphere, it cuts right through, taking the shortest route possible. And it's direct. It doesn't care if it burns you. It doesn't care if it feeds you. That is the masculine energy. Both of these energies exist in everyone and can even manifest in places like cities. The book has a great example of New York, uh, the hustle and bustle of New York being more of a masculine, energetic place, while the serene beaches of some place like Hawaii has a very feminine essence. But here's the revelation. Our initial energies, when we meet someone for the first time, set the stage of how our connection will be. So if you're meeting somebody and you're interested in being romantically involved with them, be a little bit more conscious of the energy that you're putting out. I think that's a great piece of advice that I learned from this book. Because if you are naturally a more feminine-leaning person, but for whatever reason you're in your masculine, uh, at the time of meeting somebody that you could be romantically interested in, uh, that person is going to pick up more on your masculine energy and wonder if their energy is going to match what you're presenting, which could be your masculine energy. So if you're, you know, at a football game or if you guys are at a what, competition of some sort, it could be um, something to think about. If you're a man and you're taking care of children or, you know, if you're uh, at a daycare or something like that and you meet somebody who you could be um, romantically involved with. Make sure that you are presenting what you're most comfortable in being. And of course, that's hard to do. You never know when you're going to meet somebody that you're interested in and things like that. But just something to be mindful of as much as possible. Because if we shift from neutral to either feminine or masculine when we're not naturally that, could definitely spell mayhem for a lot of uh, potential matches or potential situations that we can get in. There's a hard truth to be had as well when it comes to sexual polarity specifically. And that is relationships often crumble when sexual polarity wanes, leading to reduced intimacy. 
Passion thrives on polarity. Not extremes, but on polarity. Without the active spark, even the most robust relationships can become stagnant. There must be a concerted effort to maintain passion by keeping polarity active. Cultivating polarity equals passion, and that is a must that can be done consciously. Um, There is no settling into a relationship and getting really comfortable without there being stagnation. And there needs to constantly be uh, energy put into maintaining the polarity between the two essences for a relationship to continue in a fruitful way. There are many relationships where people just get comfortable and become more neutral. I think that spells um, death for a lot of uh, a lot of inertia. You know, yeah, inertia. A lot of like uh, movement in a positive direction for the relationship. And sooner or later, that relationship will end because one or both of those partners will look for their complementary essence elsewhere. If we, de- if we delve deeper into the masculine energy's psyche, when devoid of its complementary feminine energy, it feels trapped, stripped away from limitless possibilities, burdened by obligations. Relationships become more of a duty than a delight. The book speaks on three uh, versions, interpretations of polarity. The first is magnification. So, for example, if a feminine essence person plays her part, she can magnify her femininity because she wants his masculinity. Feeding into his masculinity will make her femininity make him almost like pick up and start being more masculine. And I don't know if that makes sense if I'm describing this really well. Feeding into his masculinity with her femininity makes him more apt to get into his masculinity more. Make him more apt to get into his masculinity. That is, um, I don't have a specific um, example. I think the example the book gave wasn't really all that great either. Um, but if something, want, if you want as a feminine as as a feminine essence person, wanting your masculine person to do something, getting into your um, feminine more so than usual will enact the reciprocal masculine essence. And I do believe that. I do believe that that is true. Um, because I tell you one thing that is true as well, getting into your masculine to get the masculine to do something works against you. 99.999 out of 99.999% uh, of the time for sure. There's also a neutralization of polarity. That's when both parties just become neutral. You know, some people call it comfortable. Some people call it just, you know, going through the motions. And neither party draws the other in. There is no um, desire to kind of raise the masculinity or the femininity of the partner so that both people kind of just dwindle or stay where they are. Uh, And this is destined for failure or at very least becoming stale. Relationships are vulnerable. Relationships like these are vulnerable to outside excitement, where either party, even if they're not looking for it, they get that um, spark of excitement from being exposed. Whether it's a you know um, the reaction to a sexual polarity that they find with somebody outside, or 
you know, start traveling, going to a place that's a little bit more masculine than um, wherever you are, whether it's, you know, a bar or, you know, some kind of athletic adventure or something like that. These are all things to take into, into account. The book has a pretty long, but really, really, oh, before I even get into that, there is the last um, situation of polarity, and that's called the reversal of polarity. And this example was really interesting. So it says when he is in his masculine and maybe he's explaining something to her, maybe he's giving her a rundown of whatever, whatever, maybe he's trying to give some kind of um, instructional information or whatever. And she interrupts and she presents her ideas or her opinion in a masculine frame that is, you know, challenging or, or bumping up against his masculine frame. Yeah, call it weak, call it childish, call it whatever you want. But in at the in the end, his masculine energy is repulsed. And because of this repulsion, he doesn't want to be passionate or even be around her at that time. This reminds me how fragile masculine essences can be and how quickly they can be altered. The book says, and I quote, from his masculine, transcendental perspective, everything fixed in life, everything concrete, may seem like a limitation or a trap. For instance, an open-minded relation, an open-ended relationship, is one thing, but marriage is quite another. For anyone with a lot of masculine energy, marriage seems like a potential trap, a constraint, a loss of freedom. A commitment to marriage is a decision to leave the transcendental realm of endless possibility and to enter the earthbound realm of endless of endless responsibility. I'll read that again. A commitment to marriage is a decision to leave the transcendental realm of endless possibility and to enter the earthbound realm of endless responsibility. The book goes on to say, when a masculine man is polarized by a feminine woman, he is attracted out of his head, out of his fantasy realm of possibilities, and is moved to engage living actually, living actuality, her. He begins to act from his feelings rather than live in his thoughts. Love draws him into the body, both his and hers. I thought that was really beautiful. Just a, a great way of saying kind of, yeah, you do live with these lofty ideas and how you can see the world and what you can accomplish and things like that. And... Um, once attracted, the masculine is attracted by the feminine to really kind of buckle down or to let go of those lofty ideas and kind of live in this earthbound realm. Yeah, there is responsibility, but with the right encouragement, with the right um, nurturing, that masculine energy is happy to relinquish those lofty ideas. Chapter three also talks about the negative shift that happens to the masculine if the feminine is missing. A man may feel trapped, giving up living in the realm of possibilities and stuck with obligations. A quote, if he does not feel enlivened by her Hawaii-like energy, then he feels the relationship as a constraint. The relationships seem like a, a weight of obligation rather than a source of energy and delight. His masculine force is no longer magnetic, magnetically polarized by a feminine force, he naturally begins to move up, up and away, back into his tower of possibility, 
where he hopes to avoid unnecessary constraints and maybe eventually find another source of feminine energy. So then he starts taking games like football season really seriously. Maybe he takes, and that's not to receive the feminine energy, but that's just to go um, back into his realm of imagination, his realm of possibilities, his realm of unlimitedness, his realm of freedom. And um, that also hampers the productivity of a relationship. I also think mood is a sign of the status of polarization in relationships. Personally, when I'm in a bad mood, I want to understand where this came from. I want to understand how did I start this, uh, this train to get me where I am today, to get me where I am in this, in this moment. If I'm frustrated, if I'm upset about anything, I just kind of like, where did this come from? When did this start? I want to know the why. I begin to reflect to figure out how I got here. And if I had a feminine partner, I would do the same if my feminine partner, she was in a bad mood. I think that doesn't serve me. And I didn't learn that until reading this book. Despite the relationships that I've been in, I know not to do certain things, but this book really gave it in a really short and, and effective way for me. It says, quote, he tries to use his head to solve her emotional problems. That, that alone sounds foolish, right? <laughs> that sounds like you're bound for a bad time. You're bound to be ineffective. However, a man's mental analysis is useless and frustrating to a woman or anyone in a feminine moment who's in a bad mood. Whew, man, that was, <laughs> that was both humbling and telling because I've done that. Um, and I continue to do that. Romantic relationships with friends. Um, I'm learning that that isn't the most effective way of showing that you care, but um, that is the default for now when it comes to me being in my masculine frame. In conclusion, this portion of intimate communion is a delicate balance of energies, emotions, and actions. Recognizing, understanding, and consciously practicing this dance is key. In future episodes, we're going to break down further a lot more information because this book is just chock full of it. I've learned so much writing all of these notes, and I can't wait to provide more insight to you and to anyone that you share this with. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining me on this audio adventure. I hope you got something out of this book. Um, as always, you can reach me at Twitter, E-F-F-A-B-L, Instagram, E-F-F-A-B-L.co. And of course, the podcast lives on that website as well, E-F-F-A-B-L.co slash podcast. Listening to Small Chops Podcast and definitely keep an eye out for part two of Intimate Communion by David Data. Thank you.